This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eaton Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at eatonvance.com slash symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Welcome to The Exchange Podcast. I'm your host, Gina Chan, West Coast columnist for Reuters Breaking News. This week, we talked to Brian Chesky, chief executive and co-founder of Airbnb. The home-sharing unicorn went from being fawned over as it prepared to go public this year to facing questions of whether it could even survive the pandemic-induced hit to its business. The near halt in travel caused business to plummet by 80% in six weeks. Chesky opens up about how he went from being a company in decent financial shape with $3 billion in cash to having to raise $2 billion in a matter of days. He also made the painful decision to lay off 1,900 employees, or about 25% of Airbnb's workforce. The Rhode Island School of Design alum also talks about the principles that guided him. The crisis showed him that Airbnb needed to go back to its roots which prompted him to slash expansion plans in flight bookings and other areas. Travel has picked up again, though people are staying closer to home. Markets have also rebounded, so Airbnb is reviving plans to go public. It had previously favored a direct listing in which it didn't raise any capital. 38-year-old Chesky says he's now looking at all options. And thanks so much, Brian, for joining us. Well, thank you, Gina. So I just want to start off to ask how you've been doing. Um, how have you been uh, holding up under lockdown? We're both in California where uh, we started this pretty early in terms of um, the sh- shutdown orders. And now the surge has come back here. So how have you been coping? And I think I, I had heard that you uh, are living with your mom, or I should say your mom is living with you, <laughs> to clarify. Yeah. So how, how has that also been going? I'll start with the second question, do the first. Um, yeah. <laughs> I remember when I was 17, I told my mom um, I wanted to be an artist and go to art school. And she said, well, whatever you do, make sure you don't grow up and start living with me when you're an adult. So I don't know how far I've come because we're living back together again. I, I think the circumstances are better than she feared. Um, but but just to tell you, um, how am I doing? You know, I'm doing as good as I think someone could in my circumstance. Um, you know, it turns out though, that if you're running a company that's, a, you know, in the business of travel and a pandemic hits and you lose 80% of your business in six weeks while working on your uh, S1, that, um, you know, and everything breaks at once, which what happened, you know, you're going to, you're going to be, you're going to be doing a lot of fixing, a lot of like putting out fires inside the house while it's burning. And that's exactly what it felt like. It's been a, I know, I know, you know, we started this company about a dozen years ago. And I thought that was the hardest thing I would ever do in my life, at least professionally. And I think the last four months has rivaled the creation of this company. So it's, it's been pretty hard. Well, so that's, um, I wanted to go back to 
before the pandemic, because as you were just saying, you're working on the S1 to go public. You guys were the hot ticket in town in terms of companies to watch this year and how you were going to be valued, if you were going to do a direct listing, and everything seemed to be coming together in terms of Airbnb's growth prospects and future. And then as you say, um, everything sort of fell apart um, for a lot of companies, but especially for Airbnb. So because you guys are so global and you have a presence in China and, and Europe is a good chunk of your business, what was the moment when you realized this was going to be something much more serious than anyone had imagined and possibly much more long-term uh, than what people had thought? Well, I mean, yeah, you pointed out we have a, we have a fairly, um, we have a meaningful business in China. And so uh, because of that, we probably got a little bit earlier indicators than other companies about the seriousness of this business. I think around late January, this is all, I'm just trying to remember all the dates, probably early February, and certainly by Valentine's Day, um, the China business had just uh, plummeted, probably similar 80% drop. And so we, we kind of knew what this could do to a country um, by then, at least insofar as travel, that it would totally shut travel down to a near global standstill or to a near standstill. But, you know, of course, I've never been through a crisis like this. I don't think anyone has. And it was really, really hard to imagine just what would happen um, from China. In March, early March, we started seeing that the slowdown spread to Europe. And you start to see the European business plummet. And North America and the United States was not yet affected. And I think the moment that it really sunk home, it was actually, I think it may have been the Ides of March, you know, mid-March. It was like, I think it might even been a Sunday. And you start to see the United States business follow the downward trajectory of Europe, which is following the downward trajectory of China and really like kind of Northern Southern Asia. And that was the moment we just realized it was like we're on a ship and a torpedo hits the side. And at that moment, everything starts breaking. You know, your business can drop 10, 20% and, you know, you could probably manage it. When a business is built like us, it's like a system, right? There's guests, there's hosts, there's communities they depend on. Um, it's like a machine. And when something drops 80%, it's like slamming the brakes on a car while you're going 100 miles an hour. Like, it's going to be really rough. And um, one of the first things that happened was that the moment that the WHO uh, declared this a pandemic and people stopped traveling, we got more than a billion dollars of cancellations from guests. So the way our model works is that you pay Airbnb, not the host, we hold the money on behalf of the host. And once you check in, we pay the host. And this is the whole idea that we're holding your money. Well, the problem is we're now holding money. It's not ours. It's not the host's money, it's the guest's money. And now there's a pandemic and they want the money back. But the problem is that our host, these are mostly regular people, you know, all over the world, including the United States, are saying, we really need this money. In fact, we need this money to pay our rent. We need this money to pay our mortgage. And so what do you do? This was probably one of the hardest decisions I've ever had to make. And we didn't want to be in a position of siding with the guest or host. So this was the moment when we wrote out a bunch of principles. We kind of knew that what was going about to happen was something that was going to be for travel bigger than 9-11 and um, 2008 combined. In fact, this has been more disruptive for American travel companies like Marriott than even World War II. 
And so we knew this was basically a once in a century event. And that decades from now, you know, if we're lucky enough to be around in decades, then we'd have indelible marks from the decisions made over the course of weeks, that decades were about to happen in weeks. And whether or not this, what happens to this company, what of this company still survives and who we become, it was like our, 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 like everything about our life was being contracted into a series of defining decisions in the matter of a few weeks or a month. And so we wrote out a bunch of principles and we said, number one, we're gonna have to be really decisive. That speed equals survival and really more than survival. Number two, we're gonna have to make principal decisions, not business decisions. The difference is, I think a business decision is a decision you make assuming the best outcome for the company. A principal decision is the world is so crazy. I don't even know what's going to happen. How do I be remembered? I want to be remembered for doing what I thought was the right thing. So you have to write down, well, what do you think the right thing to do is? As we wrote out a bunch of principles and we said, the number one thing we're going to do is serve our stakeholders. We are in the service of guests, hosts, employees, um, the communities we operate in and shareholders. And so we wrote those, we wrote those principles down. Now we got this billion dollar cancellation. We realized if it's a pandemic, guests aren't really able to travel. Many of them were telling us they felt like they were compelled to travel because they couldn't get a refund. We didn't want them putting themselves in harm's way. And so we decided to refund the guest. I stand by that decision, but that was not well received by many of the hosts uh, because they were depending on this money. So the next thing we did is we went into our own coffers and we uh, took $250 million of our own money. Now I'll say that you know before a pandemic, $250 million is meaningful for any company who's raised $3 billion. But in a pandemic where you're hemorrhaging cash and you don't even know if you can raise more money, and that was a circumstance for us in March, you know, April, this was a meaningful amount of money for us, uh, very meaningful. And so we gave that to our uh, host um, to try to do what we can to help. And then we realized we're losing a lot of money very, very quickly because we were forecasting revenue to be half what we thought. So then while taking care of our guests, taking care of our hosts, we uh, had to raise $2 billion of cash. And we had to do it over the course of a few weeks. And in fact, the investor we raised from, from the time we met them to the time we signed the term sheet was 72 hours. And so that was like kind of a record. It was throughout a weekend. All of this while meeting with employees every single week. And I said, no matter how bad it gets, every Thursday at four o'clock here in San Francisco, I'm gonna look in the camera and just tell you what's going on, bring you on this journey with us. I don't know how bad it's gonna be. Well, it turned out it was about to get worse because the business kept going down and we all of a sudden realized we had to, we couldn't afford to keep everyone Airbnb. We came to the conclusion because we said, we don't know when travel is gonna recover. And when travel does recover, it's gonna to look totally different. So we had to focus our business. That focus meant that we had to do a layoff. We laid off a quarter of our employees, 1,900 people. And maybe the last thing I'll just say is the following. Um, you, know, you can learn a lot about people in a crisis. You know, you're kind of like, you think you know people and then suddenly you're in a crisis. It feels like this really apocalyptic moment and you learn a lot about somebody. If that's true, I think you learn a lot about yourself and you can learn a lot about your own company. And as, as you feel like you start losing things in your life, what's truly important and what you want to hold on to, that often rises to the surface. And as we were losing so much of our business, what was so important to us was the thing that started this whole thing. The idea that we started not to be a travel company. We never really started to even be a real estate company. It was the early days. It was about connecting people. It was about bringing people together. 
And that was really what was at the heart of being special about Airbnb. And we said, you know what? We need to get back to basics. We need to get back to our roots of belonging connection, of empowering regular people host uh, to provide connection in all over the world. And so that was the big kind of awakening, the, this moment of like, this is what we're really about. And so that's what we've been doing. And we are now kind of focused on going back to the roots, which doesn't mean going backwards. It means going back to the fundamentals. So that's a great overview. I wanted to unpack that a bit. Um, first, in terms of the balance between the hosts and the guests, and then what Airbnb needs, as you say, you're you know bleeding all this money, you need to raise cash, and how you're sort of balancing all of those plates you have in the air, because as you say, the hosts were upset about the refunds. I saw you guys uh, try this initiative in terms of like kindness cards um, for the hosts that included uh, option for a contribution. That seemed to get some blowback from Twitter, from people who are you know talking about the economic pain that people are in in general. So Airbnb, as you said, has this uh, reputation about connecting people, and it's more than just you know some random hotel room that um, looks like any other hotel room. It is about also connecting people. So how did you try to maintain that when you do have all these other demands and people are angry and upset and scared? Well, you got to kind of go one step at a time. And when we're in a crisis, you know, you go from planning from year to year to day to day. And at that point, you're just triaging. So, you know, I think it's really, really important that you are really clear, like how to take care of people and what you need to do for people. So the first thing I think in a crisis is to be very, very clear, like what outcome you want, what your principles are, who you're gonna serve, what you're gonna do. And we basically said like the number one thing is we need to basically preserve cash. Number two, we need to preserve the company's reputation. Number three, we need to care for our very best guests and a very, very best host. Number four, we need to take employees on a journey. And number five, we need to make sure that we're ensuring, uh, protecting shareholder value. And of course, these things seem kind of obvious, but you kind of have to look at this list every day and just make sure when you're making decision, you're constantly balancing these things. Now, you know, the, 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 you, every decision you make won't make everyone happy. But the important thing is that you make a lot of decisions and the aggregate of all your decisions should feel like it's balancing everyone. So the one decision we made to with the cancellation policy, where we gave our we 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 enforced refunds for our guest, it made the guest quite happy compared to the host. We weren't able to make it all right with the host in that moment, but we did a couple of things that were quite important. You know, taking two hundred fifty million dollars of our own money and sending it to the host was very important. Additionally, once we we were planning on doing this employees came forward, and this is a pretty cool story. Employees came and collectively they came to us and said, you know, we get this travel credit every year. We give them like a credit to travel in Airbnb. And they said, we want to pledge a million dollars of our travel credit to give to the host. And we thought that was really, really cool. So we said, well, why don't we just add a zero to that? And so Joyna and I put in an extra 9 million. That got to 10 million. And a couple of our investors heard about it and they increased it to 17 million. And so then we created this thing called the Superhost Fund, where hosts can basically apply um, to get grants up to $5,000 just through pure hardship, like money that they were going to lose. So we did 
we did that. And um, I think that was like really, really important uh, to do. And, um, and we kind of told hosts, listen, like this is gonna be a long journey. We're not gonna be able to do everything for you now, but we're gonna do everything we can to be on this journey and this road for you. And then you just kind of work through it, right? With investors, it was really, really important that we understood what was most valuable and most special about Airbnb. And what investors really wanna invest in at Airbnb is they wanna believe a couple things are true. The first thing they wanna believe is that we have supply, some, the thing you book that's unique, it's different and you can't find it anywhere else. It doesn't mean everything is unique. There's gonna be some homes and Airbnb and other websites, but they wanna know we have something unique. We're not just an OTA, we have something unique. And then they wanna know that you're gonna have direct traffic coming to Airbnb. You don't have to buy the customers. You are a brand and people come directly to you. If you get free traffic, booking something unique, they can't find anywhere else and you can scale that. Well, that's a really, really simple model. And that really is afforded well a business that is really focused on connection. So that's really, these were some of the steps that we made. And I mean, yeah, so I think that that's really important. Gina, let me ask you, I just want to, can I just follow up one question there? Yeah, totally. Um, Right. I mean, you're, uh, you mentioned before you went to art school, RISD, shout out to the talking heads. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. I, I just, and, and I think you're a young guy, you, 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 you've managed to build a company in a, in, a, in a boom market, and you've been thrust into this experience, which, I mean, almost no company has had, had seen an 80% decline in their business in six weeks. I'm just curious, like, how, and you seem to have a strong grasp on, like, what it takes to be a leader. Do you have like, how do you know all this stuff? Do you have like a board of directors that you lean on that, that, that helps you? Do you have a kitchen cabinet? Do you have investors? I mean, maybe just explain that a little. I'm not, not that I want to get all management consulting here, but I do think that's, it is extraordinary what you, 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 your company has gone through. Yeah, it, it, it's an extraordinary circumstance. And if you had told me this was going to happen, I, didn't, I wouldn't be able to have told you with confidence how it would have played out for us. Um, you know, it's a great question. I mean, I started this company with my two friends and I was 20, I just turned 26 years old when I, when I started this company with my friend, Joe, and um, I didn't really know anything. I mean, about anything. I remember um, the, I came to San Francisco and somebody told me there are these people called angels. Um, and I thought to myself, oh my God, this guy believes in angels. I didn't know he meant angel <laughs> investors. I didn't know what he was talking about. And um, to just give you a sense of where I was starting from, I was like a blank slate. I didn't really know anything. The most important thing I've learned how to do is learn. It's, it's kind of a weird thing to say, but like learning how to learn is important because there's no books that you can read or, well, there are some, but let's just say when you're in a crisis, you can't read the books fast enough. And there's no book that can describe a pandemic that affects a global internet company because that's not happened before. So you have to start to learn how to learn. You have to surround yourself with really capable people. And for me, the difference was 10, 12 years ago, I was pretty, I was pretty curious and a little bit shameless. You know, I think a lot of people, they feel a little proud to ask for help. And I was never too proud. I was like, I don't know what I'm doing, what's, what's going on. And when I started Airbnb with my friends, I would ask kids, the guys, I mean, there were kids in their 20s they were a little older than me and maybe a year ahead of me. And I'd ask them questions and I'd meet with them every week. And what I learned is that you're kind of, there's an old saying, you're kind of the average of the five people you surround yourself with. And you surround out people a little ahead of you and you ask them questions. What you find out is people are so much more helpful than you ever think. If you talk, if you reach out to 10 people for help, I'm not sure they'll all help you, but most people think people will shun you. And I would say that people are very flattered. They like, 
when there, somebody asks you for help, you feel kind of like, wow, like they, they, they really want to help. There's this yearning to help one another. I think it was a really good culture. And over time, as we got more successful, we started surrounding ourselves with even more successful people that had more skill. So our board was really helpful um, in the early days. You know, um, Paul Graham, you know, Reed Hoffman. There were there were a number of people from Sequoia that helped us. And today, our board has been pretty helpful as well. Like Ken Chenault is on the board is on our board. He was the CEO of American Express. American Express he led through 9/11 and 2008. So, you know, I mean, and remember, they're a financial company. So imagine right. 9-11, uh, how bad that would have been, because they also were exposed to travel 2008. Well, American Express, that was a very bad situation for them. So he was very helpful. And I've also been pretty shameless about like, like just kind of really notable people that I can reach out to for help. I had the good fortune in 2000 and I think it was 15, um, uh, I think it was 15, um, meeting President Obama and, um, you know, I, um, because he opened up Cuba and Airbnb was like the, one of the only American companies that even had a way to enter Cuba from a business perspective. And since then, I, you know, kind of kept in touch with people like him. And, um, and you know, this is all a privilege of kind of being able to run a pretty big company. But, you know, I think being a learner is like so critical and those that know it all don't learn it all. And they kind of cap out and, and max out. And so, I think curiosity is like the number one trait. If you're curious, you're going to learn. If you learn, you can grow. And what you'll find out is that all of us have unrealized potential. And you ask my high school teachers, like, could I have done this? And they'd say, I don't even think he could have been, you know, I don't know what they would have said, but they wouldn't have said this. But the point is that none of us are set in stone. And I think that's an important lesson. So how did um, some of this experience and, and the learning that you had done prior to this, how did that inform the way you wanted to let go of people, because that's always a very tough thing for a company to do. Um, and especially for the way that uh, you had created the culture at Airbnb, I think um, was, was even tougher in some ways. But also at the same time, as, as you had mentioned, you also raised money around $2 billion. So I don't know if the way you did the layoffs was was very transparent and much more classier than uh, you know some random Zoom meeting that uh, a lot of people seem to have favored. But you had raised this money, and then you're laying people off. I don't know if you had to deal with questions about you know could any of that money have saved any of these jobs? Um, what does it mean for uh, the future of how you know employees are, are treated? Is is this are we now just basically like a a regular business like everyone else's. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of really, uh, Gina, really good questions there. Um, let me kind of start with like how we kind of made, got to the decision to do the layoff, which is a really hard one. And then maybe I can talk about like, well, once you make the decision, how do you do it? And how do you reconcile that? And does that make you just another corporation? So first of all, starting with the decision, when I, uh, when I, when we had to do the layoff, I kind of wrote all, all the thoughts. I, um, and I ended up putting them in a basically the equivalent of like a letter, which you could just Google it, I guess. And it's publicly available. One of the first things I said was for a company whose mission is rooted in belonging. It was an incredibly difficult thing to confront. I don't think there's a CEO of any company in the world that I don't, I've never encountered one that thinks a layoff is an easy thing to do or the most among any of the most unpleasant and awful things that you would ever have to confront as a company. I think this is true of any CEO. They're gonna say, I, I mean, I, CEOs were giving me advice 
you know, who've been through this, this is, you know, it's going to be like the worst thing you'll ever have to do if you are confronted with this. And, um, you know, so I think that was the first thing. So we knew this would be very difficult if we had to do it. And we weren't sure if we had to, but once we confronted the hard truth, the hard truth said two things as I counter the facts. The first thing is the business drops 80%. We're in a pandemic and we don't know when travel is going to recover. We do believe Airbnb is going to recover. We do believe at that time travel is going to recover, but we don't know. We don't know if it takes three months or three years. Could be could take longer. And the other truth we confronted is that the world had permanently changed. It's never, ever going back. And that means that travel as we know it, travel as of January 2020 is over. It's not coming back. It doesn't mean the companies aren't coming back. It doesn't mean people aren't traveling again. They all are. It's just that once an industry goes through this kind of transformation, it gets fundamentally reshaped. I can only guess and hypothesize what that change will look like, but I do know it will be quite different. I think all of us do. When you realize those two things, you realize that you can't afford to do all the things you used to do, and you can't afford to keep everyone, especially when we realize no matter how much our business recovers, the best case scenario is we'll make half the revenue we would have made the year before. So you, you know, you're, you're, you're losing a significant amount of money. Now we did raise $2 billion, but this is the really important point. We didn't get, uh, it was a loan, it was debt, it wasn't equity. Because the business was like, because the markets were so volatile and it was, we were basically entering somewhere between a recession and a depression. I mean, it was, the market was so bad. Investors weren't really interested in um, trying to value a travel, a company so exposed to travel. Like what's the market cap of the company? What's its valuation? And people, it just, it was too noisy. Volatility makes it really, really hard to price. So it became very, and, and we didn't, you know, it became very clear that debt would be the right move here. Well, that debt meant that we have to eventually pay that money back. So it's not like it's $2 billion of our money and that's it and we can just spend it. We got to pay that money back. And the interest rate was, you know, was, was, was not, you know, it was the interest rate you pay when you're in the middle of a pandemic and your business drops a lot. <laughs> so you got to, you got to, you want to pay that back, um, you know, in not too long. And so those things basically came, made us come to the realization that this was an unavoidable truth and we were going to have to do it. So then one of the pieces of advice I got is if you're ever going to do a layoff, never have to do it twice. The first layoff is really hard on the culture and the second layoff breaks the culture. And so we said, if we are going to do this, we're going to have to make sure that we you know, make the significant savings so we can weather the storm. And so our principle was, we're going to make a cut not deeper than we have to, but deep enough so if this storm goes on indefinitely, we are certain we don't have to do another layoff. Through lots of time and energy focused on this, that's where we got to with approximately 1,900 people, which was around 25% of our staff. So then we said, we're going to write out a series of principles of how to do this. So this can't be a good experience for people. We can only take a bad situation and do the best we can in a very bad situation. So we wrote a, a bunch of principles. I published them in this letter. The first thing I said is that we want to map all reductions to our future business strategy. Our future business strategy was to go back to the fundamentals of Airbnb, everyday people, you know, people offering homes and experiences. And so that meant that we had to stop doing transportation. We had a really awesome transportation product. And I felt like if next year you were gonna book a flight, I think it would have been pretty awesome on Airbnb. 
well, we've paused that entire project. We're not offering that um, for the kind of foreseeable future. We had a whole content play, you know, travel content. We paused that. We took our hotel business. We have an acquisition hotel tonight, and we had to scale back the amount of investment. That's still important. We had to scale it back. Airbnb Plus, it was a mid-tier, it's a mid-tier product. We've had to basically scale that back. Our luxury product, we've had to scale that back and a few other things. So we basically took anything that wasn't the core of our kind of community that was all about connection, anything that was, you know, it wasn't, doesn't say it's not, not about it, but was further out from that nucleus, those we had to reduce. The second thing we said is we were going to bring employees along and we were going to optimize for a very personal process. So, you know, we spent like, you know, after we announced that we had to do this layoff, we, you know, went through the, 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 all of the time to make sure every single person got a personal conversation, personal phone calls, personal, you know, a number of our early employees that if anyone early that left, Joe, Nate, and I tried to like, you know, write personally to and connect with them and try to make a fairly impersonal experience because we can't even gather as personal as one could make it. And the final thing is we were going to take people on a journey, but not communicate anything more than um, we could because we didn't want to create uncertainty. And so then we went to our board and we thought, you know, this is a recession. It's going to be hard for people to get, you know, employed elsewhere or harder than it usually would be. We want to do as much as we possibly can for them. Whatever it costs us, it's going to cost more for the employees if they don't get it. And so we basically came with a bunch of principles. The first one was that we're going to basically offer 14 weeks uh, severance plus one week per year service. The second one was, and this is mostly a U.S. thing, was in the middle of a pandemic, it was very important in a global health crisis that people had health insurance. So we basically extended people's health insurance for one year after employment, one year. We wanted to make sure that people could get a job. Getting a job means you need a computer so you can get on Zoom and you can, you know, it, without a computer, you can be cut off from the world. So we let everyone keep their Apple laptops. And the final thing we did, which I think was maybe the most clever, and it was an idea that came from some of our employees, um, was that we would take a portion of a recruiting team and basically dedicate them for 2020 to helping departed employees get placed to other companies. And we went even further. We allowed every employee to opt into an alumni directory. Basically, anyone who left, they could go to directory. We published the directory online so companies could go onto the directory and see all the employees that got laid off. You'd opt in and then you could reach out to them. Well, what happened next was maybe the most surprising thing. 500,000 people visited our alumni directory and many of them you know, got outreach. And so it doesn't cost you anything to like publish a directory um, some companies might be nervous that like you can reverse engineer the company's strategy or, you know, there, there's many reasons why one would not want to do that. And all those reasons are probably less important than just helping people in a time of need. And I think the last thing I just say is, um, you know, I, I, uh, I said some things, you know, to employees that most CEOs don't say, like I said, I really have a deep sense of care and love for every one of you. I, I, that's what I felt. I felt I was very emotional. And I think that in business, we're often, um, you know, kind of instructed to stay on message, not be too vulnerable. Like, don't like, you know, don't say this. And by the way, a layoff is like the one time a CEO is given like the most instructions. You can't do this. You can't say this. You can't say this. Here's the rules. Here's how you do it. The outcome of which is you kind of can create a dehumanizing experience. I'd rather make a bunch of mistakes and be human, have a little bit of heart and say, hey, I'm human. I'm sorry. than try to be scripted. And then people just feel really, really cold. 
And I think that's because in a time of need right now, when tens of millions of people are losing their jobs and when people are afraid of for their life, I mean, that's what this is. They want to just know something. They want to know that there are people that are trusted with power and responsibility and that those people have compassion. Because if those people don't have compassion, then this is a really, really scary world because they're the ones supposed to be looking out for us. And I think that like, if I've ever had a moment of responsibility in my life, you know, this crisis was just a giant reminder of all the responsibility that I have. Well, that's a great um, overview of how you approach this. Um, in terms of now looking forward, um, you guys are starting to see things come back a bit, um, but maybe in, in different ways. And I'm gonna turn it over to um, my colleague, Rob Cox, because he has actually dared to travel and fly on an airplane multiple times wow. now, um, wearing masks for nine hours straight, I think. Um, yeah, and yeah. so I uh, wanted to turn to him about, you know, how you guys are um, seeing travel change. Yeah. Well, well Brian, I just like, yeah, I have, as Tina said, I've been, I'm based in Zurich. And so I've been back and forth to the States now twice. Um, it is a, it's a, I wouldn't say it's a harrowing experience actually, because there's nobody on the planes yeah. at all. It's probably worse going domestically where you have everybody crammed in fact is Americans aren't allowed in Europe and vice versa. But I'm curious, I, uh, you know, two things. One, whether you're seeing some, what embers of things sort of, you know, turning back on in different parts of the world, certainly starting with China, where obviously you have, you know, quite a strong business. I wonder if you're seeing some glimmers of things getting back up. Um, in Europe, obviously, um, there is within Schengen in certain parts, there is travel that's happening and, and people are getting back out there. Um, and uh, just to, whether you have some sense, and then I guess maybe your sense of, you know, where this is headed. What is the, you, no, you, you can't necessarily read into the future, although you did um, enough to have created this business, but I just, you know, wh what will change about people's views about what they need in their stay, whether it's hygiene, whether it's the way the keys are handed off, all of these things, and what impact that will have on your business? Yeah, so it's a very, very good question. Um, Here's what we're seeing in travel right now. First of all, um, you know, we don't want to be premature and say there's a recovery. Nobody can tell us, nobody knows if what we're seeing is the beginnings of sustainable recovery or pent up demand. It could just be multiple months of demand compressed into weeks. But I will say that we're incredibly optimistic. Things have far exceeded any, it almost, it almost defies logic what we're seeing right now, I would say. Um, on July 8th, we did 1 million room nights in a single day. That defies wow. logic. It, it defies logic. It just what does. Is, how does that compare to normal, I don't know, normal business? I mean, how what do you mean, what do you mean by a normal business? 1 million in a, in a day. Is that 1 million room nights booked, which, you know, if you just multiply by 365, yeah. that's the annual run rate of room nights booked. That's that's significant. You know, that, that and, and again, this is, this is in a pandemic. So that is very surprising. It, again, I say it, it defied, it defied what I would have said was logical in April or even May. Um, and what it's still, there's a couple lessons here. So let me, let me, let me maybe share with you what that says. Lesson number one, um, people want to get out of their house right now. <laughs> no matter where you are, a lot of people want to get out of their house. Those who have the privilege and can afford to get out of their house or, or don't need to be working. And that's a lot of people, they don't have that privilege, but enough do to book a million nights in a single day, they want to get out of their house. Number two, mostly, and you're presumably somewhat of an exception, most people don't want to get on airplanes. No. 
but they are willing to get in a car and they're willing to drive somewhere. And the place they're willing to drive is within two or 300 miles. That's around a tank of gas. And they're not really interested in going to big cities. They want to go to less urban areas, small towns, rural areas, even national parks. They want to be outdoors. They want to be in less dense areas. They don't want to be in crowds. They don't want to be in public spaces. They don't want to be in lines. So they're not doing the natural, the natural like kind of mass tourism, double-decker buses to go to selfie sticks in front of landmarks. But they do want to have, they're yearning for something. They're yearning for connection. Whether they want to connect to friends or family they haven't seen, connect to the community, connect with other hosts. Um, and, 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 and so Airbnb kind of affords all these things. The other thing that's happening is people aren't crossing borders that much, but they are traveling within their own country. So our global travel, our cross-border travel is way down, but there are countries where they have robust domestic trips, United States, France, United Kingdom. These are all countries where people would often leave their country and they're now rediscovering their country. A whole bunch of people here in San Francisco that would have flown to X country are now choosing a community around them. And so there's something kind of interesting there. It's a major trend that I think is part of an even bigger global trend. The travel trend I would call is travel redistribution. That there used to be 20 or 30 cities in the world. Everyone flew there. They went for business. They went for vacation. They stayed in a central tourist district. They went on double-decker buses. They ate at these chain restaurants or whatever TripAdvisor told them to. And I think that now it's totally changing. People are now going to small towns. So instead of going to Paris, they're going to Petaluma, Pittsburgh, all these little towns, little or small cities, um, if they're not small towns. And so that I think is dovetailing a bigger trend, population redistribution, where people are rediscovering the suburbs, the small towns, rural areas. And so I think this is what this is starting to tell us, that people want to connect, but they want to do so safely. And unlike a hotel where you're in a public space, an Airbnb is a little more private. So I think people feel like, Maybe for the first time in a long time, Airbnb is not the riskier option. Um, but the last thing I'll just say is we, we brought on the former Surgeon General of the United States. His name is Dr. Vivek Murthy. And we brought him on to help us develop an enhanced cleaning protocol to make sure that our hosts are able to clean their homes to a standard that the former Surgeon General could stand behind. And so we've kind of educated our host and they can get a badge if they've gone through a training program and these are some of the things we're doing. Can I ask you one thing? You, you, mentioned, you mentioned those cities, those 30 cities in the world. And, and I was in one of them recently. I was in Venice and I was at a, um, a symposium um, where they were discussing the future of Venice and this idea that, you know, they want to reduce their sort of dependence on tourism. And, the, and Airbnb came up and not in a positive way. I mean, it was sort of like, you know, what do we do about Airbnb? All these people running around with their trolleys and, uh, you know, their bags and, and, disturbing, you know, creating these, these tourist ghettos where, where, and people leaving the city of Venice. I, I just wonder how you respond to that. Is, is there sort of this pause now is a pause in which people are going to think about those things and read, you know, think about their regulations, think about what they want to do. How do you, how do you speak to those people in say Venice or any other city like that, Barcelona, go through the list. Some of them already have regulations, but, you know, to say, look, we'll be, we're going to be good neighbors or we're going to change the way we do things or we want to help you well it's a great great question let me say two 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 big points number one we want to actually like we want to strengthen the communities we're in not extract from them we want people going in and giving not taking and by the way our whole idea is you go to community you live in a real community 
So if a community is flooded with tourists, the character goes down, the whole point of Airbnb doesn't even happen. And so um, we wanna be able to do that. The second thing I'll say is this, this pandemic has been a reset moment. It's been a reset moment. And I think that reset moment does mean that people are gonna basically disperse and redistribute. And you're not gonna have so many people over concentrating one area. They're gonna be redistributed to communities that want tourism. So our general principle is I would like in the future that you come to Airbnb and if a city wants or a country wants more tourism, we can promote that destination. In fact, we're now doing that. We've done partnerships with destination marketing organizations. These are basically like the government arms promoting tourism for local communities. Right. So when you pay tax, some of that tax, those tax hours go to promote the destination. You ever see like visit Sweden or visit X city, uh, visit North Carolina, they even do states. So we're working with them. We did a partnership with the national parks, for example. There's 400 national parks in the United States. The average American lives within a couple hundred miles of one. And the average American has never been to a national park, but it's not that expensive. There's a lot of, there's not a lot of hotels near national parks, but there are a lot of homes that surround national parks. So this would be like a variation of these communities want tourism. We'll partner to provide tourism and we want to be part of the solution. We don't want to be part of the problem. And I also think, you know, I think one of the other things I'll just say about Venice is one of the biggest culprits of Venice, I think, were tourists, you know, maybe coming off of cruise ships, flooding the city, not really patroning some of the local communities, just visiting souvenir shops and maybe getting on the ship. And, you know, I think all of us in the travel industry, Airbnb included, absolutely, we need to think very thoughtfully about like what kind of like what kind of world will we participate in with travel? Are we going to flood communities and like, are we going to actually like have communities where people participate and they give? And I think that's really, really important to us. And I think this is an opportunity for us to kind of rebuild our relationship with core cities. And if a city is watching, I tell them that like, we want to actually partner with you. We're willing to make concessions. One of the concessions we just made was in the city of New York. Um, you know, tens of thousands of hosts are going to, presumably if they can't comply, take their homes off the platform. And I hope that's a, that's our, that was our probably most iconic and most well-known uh, challenge of any city in the world. We're willing to absolutely cooperate. We know we have to, um, you know, we're in the business of partnering with cities and we, I don't want to just stay, we're going to do better. I hope these actions show the beginnings of that effort. You talk about principles and that's a principle that the decision like that is uh, you've decided that you, you want to be, it's a long-term good decision. How yeah, does that change yeah. if you become a public company? I and mean, presumably that'll happen. I mean, well, we haven't talked about that, but I, you know, I'd be curious, like, how does that fit in? Because you're, you're thinking long-term, you're thinking like, you know, you're going to make some decisions that short-term from, you know, when you're a public company, investors will not love. Listen, I think investors are going to like a lot of things we're doing. There are going to be some things they don't like. I will say this. I think the best thing for shareholders is that society wants us to exist. I think that's pretty obvious. I think the other thing I'd say is Airbnb, at the end of the day, the whole idea of Airbnb is you stay in a community. To stay in a community, it's ideal the community wants you there or wants Airbnb there. And so for us, unlike other companies, we don't just like make a widget. We have a whole bunch of stakeholders. We have the hosts, we have the neighbors, the landlords, we have the cities, city council. We have a lot of constituents. The more those constituents like Airbnb want it to exist, the more we'll expand and the stronger we're going to be in the long run. It does mean taking a lot of pain in the short term in some areas and making uh, big concessions. And by the way, we've been doing this for years. 
we've been we've collected more than a billion dollars of hotel occupancy tax um, since we started by doing agreements with over a thousand cities. But I do think that if I look back on it, I think we could have done more sooner. You know, when I came to Silicon Valley in 2007, the word technology, it may as well have been a dictionary definition for the word good. If you were a technology company, you were good because a technology company is moving humanity forward and every step forward for humanity was making it a better place or so that's what we told ourselves. And it turns out that technology is neither good nor bad. It can be used for good or bad. It's just a lot of power. And we all thought of our businesses primarily as platforms. You know, this is the, you know, I, I remember studying like Craig Newmark, Pierre Midiar. They talked a lot about the internet, kind of, these weren't their exact words, but kind of being like an immune system and you build great moderation tools. You believe people are fundamentally good and it's a little more hands-off. Well, I think what happens is once you do that and you give these tools and these platforms in the hands of hundreds of millions of people, suddenly you realize you have more responsibility than just being a platform. And I think all of Silicon Valley has now realized that we aren't just platforms, that we have to be more than platforms. We have to take responsibility for the activity happening on our platform. And in Airbnb, we unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't know what you say, probably learned that lesson sooner because most tech companies, they get challenged because they're big. We got challenged kind of before we were big because we moved into your neighborhood is how people experienced it. And so we learned these lessons very, very early on. And I'm not saying we, 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 were, we were quick enough, but you know, suddenly we've come to the conclusion that yes, um, you know, and this has been over the coming years. I wrote an open letter early January, 2018, saying that we wanna be you know, really a different kind of company than you know, a kind of company that's only focusing on the short term serving shareholders. We said that's not even good for shareholders. Um, ultimately, we want to serve multiple stakeholders and be able to stand behind our actions. And you know, we have, we have a lot of important decisions we still have to make um, as we grow, but I think these are going to be great for shareholders in the long run, as long as they're willing to be on that journey with us and we explain our thinking to them step by step. So Brian, how does that uh, stakeholder approach and then the broader outlook for Airbnb's business affect um, your decisions on going public. Um, you had mentioned, you know, you guys were putting together pretty much, I think, had finished the S1 um, in March when all this hit. There was uh, talk of you guys doing a direct listing instead of a traditional IPO. Um, now that you are cutting back in terms of a lot of your expansion plans and focusing a bit more on sort of the core business, how does that affect how you think about going public, what the size or valuation would be and um, what, what you think is, is the best route? Because we have seen markets remarkably come back as well. And um, it seems there are more opportunities than, than not. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, uh, I mean, as the pandemic hit, we were working on the S1. We were prepared to file it around March 31. We had to put on the shelf a little bit because we had a bit of firefighting to do. We've now, you know, kind of dusted that off and we are, you know, we're back to working and being prepared. We don't know when we'll go public. Um, we'll be ready. When the market's ready, we'll be ready. Um, you know, it's, it's still a little up and down. Um, companies have succeeded in going public. Most of those are not companies in travel. So it, 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 you, know, you still want to be like kind of thoughtful. Um, but to answer your question, like I, I definitely should not speculate on 
um, what the valuation would be. Um, I will say a couple things though. Number one, we made a lot of really hard decisions, um, but I do think that what people are gonna like about the company is it's really focused. We're more focused than we've ever been. And investors said what they really wanna do is invest in a company that has uh, is got a lot of direct traffic coming to offer to, and we offer something unique. Well, as we focus on getting back to our roots, we're really focused on what is most special, what is most unique. That market is massive. In a recession, people are turning to hosting. So we think this is a huge opportunity. This is the big opportunity for Airbnb. And so I, I think that it's it's a great business. I think it will still be a great business. And um, you know, I don't, I, I don't think anything changes for the long term in a negative way for us. Um, the only other thing I just say is, um, how does this change how we'd run our company as a public company? Well, the whole idea was that regardless of how good or bad things got, you would be somewhat impervious to the kind of potentially rapacious demands of what you have as a public company CEO. I'll say this, whatever pressure I feel as a public company CEO, and it will be great, it will never ever probably compare to the kind of pressure I felt like having a business drop 80% in six weeks or so, you know, in what we went through. So this company I think is, is ready for really anything. Like we've, we've, we are kind of a little more battle hardened than we were before. And, uh, and we'll, we'll be prepared. And I think, I hope the last few months, whether people like our decisions or not, we've shown that when it's really, really tough, um, we can make hard decisions. And remember, I think the only thing I just say is this, all those decisions we were making, those hard decisions, though we weren't a public company, we knew we had to go to raise billions of dollars. We knew investors were watching. And we said, we know investors are watching and we're still gonna act with our principles. And frankly, great investors are gonna like that. And we raised money from Silver Lake and Sixth Street. They led the first billion and they led 200 of the next billion. So 1.2 billion to 2 billion were just these two firms, Egon and Allen. Um, they said, one of the reasons we chose to invest in you is because of how you've handled the crisis. Paradoxically, something that seemed like maybe investors wouldn't like it, actually for the right investors, this is exactly what they were looking for. So yeah, you know, you kind of sometimes you just kind of follow, you know, what, you know, there's, there, there must be a lesson here. And maybe the lesson is follow what's true to you, be true to your heart and, you know, not, don't try to like appease everyone. And actually paradoxically, that's maybe how you make everyone happier anyway. I'd assume your use of proceeds will be though to take those investors out with their rather crisis uh, interest rates. I mean, what, what would what would what would be the point of going public raising capital? Essentially, is what I'm asking. Oh, oh, as far as well, yeah, well, you need the yeah, well, 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 so you're you're kind of going into a different question of a direct listing versus an IPO. And what I'll just say is that we haven't, um, we we've not we we have not made any like kind of definitive. Um, kind of determinations um, with regards to raising additional capital. So I, I really shouldn't speculate sure. on that. That would be a bit of speculation. Have you thought about, um, this is, I guess, also speculation, but have you also thought about a special purpose um, acquisition vehicle, a SPAC, which is all the rage now? Um, I mean, I know you guys were looking at a direct listing before. Um, this is also possibly a way to get around the tr traditional IPO process. You know, we've um, been approached by some people that um, have presented us um, some opportunities and, you know, um, 
we're, we're looking at everything. So I probably shouldn't speculate too much on it. It's very novel, um, you know, not a lot of precedents. So only, I guess, what, two big precedents for direct listing with um, um, Spotify and Slack, and then not a lot of SPACs. So, you know, we're looking at everything. Great. Well, I know um, we're running out of time uh, for, and we want to be able to get to questions. Uh, yeah. So Rob, I'll turn it sure. over to you for that. I'll take I'll take a look at some of the questions here. We've got a lot, so uh, <laughs> let me just see. Um, a lot of them obviously are your, um, your, you know, your customers and your uh, associates, you know, people who have homes. So I'll start with one of those. Hi, I've been a full-time host for seven years. It paved my way through college and I had the opportunity to buy property. After graduating to expand, I've been hosting full-time since I started college. All my homes are shared. Each guest gets their own room. Do you think guests will return to sharing spaces? Will there be hesitation? What are your plans or marketing plans to get people confident with shared stays? Yes, so um, it's a great question. Airbnb started with shared stays. In other words, we started with people renting out bedrooms, but you'd be in the house with them. They'd get their room, right. you'd have to be in your room. And this has been a, a meaningful part of our business. As our business has begun to see some signs of recovery, um, entire spaces where you're not sharing the space has recovered faster than shared spaces. This is probably obvious why this would be. People are socially distancing, so they don't want to be as much in close proximity. So we do think that shared spaces are going to recover. And um, I'm very optimistic about this category. I want people to feel like this is a category they can count on. Um, we are working on some um, you know, specific protocols for shared listings. Obviously, if people in the same space together, beyond just cleaning surfaces, which is the kind of guidelines we have in a tire space, there's gonna be guidelines about people interacting with each other. And so we're rolling out some of those guidelines. And I think as, as people, um, as, as, as those guidelines come out, I think that you'll start to see more confidence in this category. In long-term, what I would say, and it's hard to put a timeline on this, I think the shared spaces is probably one of the biggest areas of growth. I'd say two of the biggest areas of growth for a home's business would be shared spaces and would be unique homes. Uh, I'll kind of explain those too. The reason shared spaces are so popular is first of all, they're like half the price, right? You're not paying the, for the whole home, you're paying for a bedroom, but you get kind of access to the whole home. And you get, by the way, really good service because there's a problem, the person's like down the hallway. So you're saving money, you get really good service. You just gotta be okay that somebody's in the house with you. And you know, if you, you can see their profile and frankly, a lot of people are gonna be okay with that, especially in a recession when they wanna save money and they're yearning for connection. They feel more isolated than ever. So as long as we can get over the hump of the cleaning protocol, we actually think this is gonna be a really important category. And I think a host like the person you're citing, I think if we can just get through this hump and I don't know how long it is, I think they'll be in a really good spot. The other thing I'd say is unique homes are booming. Yeah, what are unique homes? Tree houses, airstreams, things that are unique. They tend to be outside of cities. They tend to be special, unique, one of a kind. And that's what I think what really people are looking for today. In a world, like I don't think they're looking for mass production like they used to, like mass tourism. They want something more private, intimate, smaller, unique, special, something that can be a destination in and of itself. And I think unique homes could offer that too. So somebody's- well, that's, a nice, that, that's a great segue to another question someone okay. sent in, which is assuming post-COVID travel, uh, travel resumes Q4 2021 and beyond, do you foresee major hotel chain closings due to increased reliance and familiarity in the Airbnb model? In other words, if, I mean, that's sort of an interesting segue from what you're saying. If people really yeah. become 
like this idea of connection. And I agree, it is uh, one of the key features. Of yeah, Airbnb. I would say um, the hotel's recovery and their challenge with recovery is not going to be primarily Airbnb. It's going to be primarily one or two other things. The biggest challenge hotels have is they are very much dependent on business travel. Um, a vast majority of the profits for hotels are business travelers. Business travel for now has all but stopped. Business travel will come back, but it's not going to come back the way it was because suddenly now, like we can, you can do meetings, you can do interviews, you can do things on Zoom. I think that people will travel for business just like they are going to travel overseas again, but they're going to do it for things that are more special. It's not going to be the same volume. It will be more special. So I think that's going to cause some challenges for them. I think the business travel. I think the second challenge for them is they're super concentrated in mega metropolises and hyperdense areas. And you're basically seeing this, a population redistribution where people aren't just traveling to small communities, they're moving to small communities. And hotels, they are in small communities, they just don't work as well because they require density and occupancy and economies of scale. So those are gonna be headwinds for them. Their pipelines are slowing because they're not building new hotels. But you know what? The, they, like all sorts of industries, anyone who's resilient will survive. I think one of the great uh, lessons of mother nature is not the smartest that survives, but the most adaptable that survives. And this is a kind of apocal moment for the travel industry. And so any hotel company that's adaptive is going to be fine. They're going to survive. And any company, whether it's a hotel or otherwise, that wants to live in the world as it was, well, they're going to be in trouble. Hotel Darwinism, as it were. So <laughs> one other last question um, I think we have time for. After the Great Depression, Walt Disney was focused on bringing joy to people's lives during what was a very difficult moment in society. How can Airbnb recreate the sense of magic in travel after the pandemic? Wow, that is a big nice question. question, right? Like My God, that's like a big that. one. And, and, and just so happens that um, Walt Disney was somebody I've spent a lot of time, um, you know, kind of looking up to. I have like books, I don't know if I have them here, like of him, I studied, I have a book, uh, anyways. So, you know, I think that they, they made a really important point. You know, Mickey Mouse, this is just a weird detour, came out during the middle of the Great Depression. And Mickey Mouse at the time was like this challenge of status quo, like we can puck ourselves up by the bootstraps. And then Disneyland was launched um, or created a little after World War II. So kind of these businesses, whether it was, you know, Mickey Mouse, Snow White came after the Great Depression and then Disneyland came after World War II, you know, I think in trying times, you're right, people want joy and they're looking for it. So ultimately, what does that mean for us? I think that we have an opportunity to be useful to society. And I think a way we can be useful is to bring a little more connection. So here's what I'll say. One of the things I learned from the Surgeon General of the United States is that he believed the number one killer in America was not obesity, was not cancer, it was loneliness. Because loneliness was a dark thread that was kind of a leading indicator of type two diabetes, obesity, opioid uh, addiction, depression, anxiety, that it was a dark thread and that it was actually going to be the number one killer. And this was before the pandemic. And by the way, loneliness isn't just like your grandparent living alone. Every one of us is part of the human condition. We are feeling a sense of disconnection. So what I think Airbnb, we can do, how can we be useful to this world? We can be useful because we can help connect people. We're not gonna solve this problem, but we can make a small debt in it. And that's what I think we can do. I think people are happier when they're with other people, whether they think they will be or not, they usually are. And so if we can help connect people, bring them together, connect them to the communities, people that matter, I think that's what we can do and, um, and make this world feel a tiny bit smaller, a little less scary, 
and make travel really fun again. And I think the magic of travel is going to be back. I'm hoping that we're going to re-enter a new golden age of travel. And that if that, there is a golden age, it's going to be a travel that's not mass. It's not massive. It's small and it's intimate. That's what I'm hoping. Well, on that note, uh, we've, our hour is up. I want to thank Gina Chan and, and for the interview with Brian Chesky. John, Brian, thank you for your time. Good luck with uh, everything you're doing. I mean, great. We, uh, I'll let you know how, the, how it goes, the product next week when I- uh, Yeah, let me know. In, in Vermont, but um, good luck with everything. Good luck with going public, you know, all those kind of things that yeah. you have to look forward to. And um, thank you to our producers and everyone who tuned in. Thank you. We'll be here to unpack whatever option Airbnb chooses to go public. That's it for now. We'll be back next week with another edition of the Exchange Podcast. I'd like to thank our producer, Freddie Joyner, and all of you for listening. If you haven't already, please sign up on iTunes and anywhere else you satisfy your audio cravings for The Exchange, The Views Room, and other Reuters podcasts. You can also check us out at BreakingViews.com and on Twitter at BreakingViews and at Gina Chan. Thanks for tuning in. This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC.